Hey friends, our guest today is a brilliant man with an extensive educational history centering around electrical and biomedical engineering. He and I had a very interesting conversation about the human brain, artificial intelligence, his work on designing and implementing technology at IBM and Intel, and then we briefly got into the topic of human sexuality. 90 minutes was not enough, and I hope to get him back for another episode where we can continue to dive down into humans and why we do what we do. I hope you enjoy. Here is my friend, Claude Cruz. So going through your bio, uh, a PhD, should I call you doctor? No, I no? don't believe in formalities. No. Uh, there are certain places, you know, if you're in a uh, technical conference of some sort where that gives you credibility uh, that you wouldn't otherwise have. But in normal life, I mean, we all do what we uh, love and are accomplished in different areas. So, mm-hmm. Well, you have a number of degrees. You want to you kind of give a brief history of, of that? Yeah, I yeah. remember actually since early childhood, I was very interested in, in the sciences, generically. And so uh, I started to explore those. And I also love medicine. I uh, had a very close run-in in my undergrad years with getting into medical school. I actually got accepted at a couple med schools. But uh, physical sciences still had their hold on me. So <clears throat> I ended up basically pursuing an engineering career, trying to optimize. I figured, well, that would be a good way to earn a living and at the same time be doing pushing the frontiers in the sciences. What I found out is the, the theory was good, but in practice, uh, being an engineer is very different, I think, from being a scientist. It's okay. a, you approach it in a different spirit. And I'm basically what in prior centuries might have been uh, called a uh, natural philosopher. Okay. I love this glorious world that we're in and what makes it tick and uh, you know all the diversity. And so the applications are something that, uh, as an engineer, are first and foremost. What I found out in my many years, I spent 35 years in high tech at places like IBM and Intel, usually in a research or so-called architecture sort of function, kind of the big picture stuff. Okay. And it, it it's great to be able to sketch out and then coordinate building something useful, building something that people need. But that's not really where my heart lies. I, I'm more of an explorer. So I ended up anyway getting a double BS and then a, a joint master's in electrical and biomedical engineering in part because those are kind of the underlying uh, fields if you want to go into things like data sciences. You need to understand uh, both of those fields. And biomedical was my concession to keeping the life sciences engaged. Uh, so that worked out fairly well, actually. In the course of that, I also got plenty of latitude to uh, to explore the neurosciences, which, as it turns out, has been my true lifelong passion. N- uh, neurosciences, both from a biological point of view and from a psychological point of view. And there's this huge spectrum of how you layer behavior on top of low, lower and lower level mechanisms that... Uh, you know, it's a lifetime of learning just to kind of get the lay of the land of how those fit together. But what I'm working on even now as a retiree is, in fact, uh, simulating large neural networks, not for the sake of really emulating all the detailed biology, 
but to try to understand what are the basic information processing and information representation principles behind human cognition. Okay. So. So. Tell me, tell me about your childhood and and getting into that. Were you always in? in were, you, were you an inquisitive individual that kind of felt that was your direction, and you you could tell early on? Yeah, I count myself lucky actually in having having had that drive from as early as I can remember. Basically, I used to love to walk around by myself in the hills behind where we were living, looking for fossils. Or, you know, the night sky, just the fascination with, with nature read broadly. And then in high school, uh, I was able to, to duck the more rote science courses and uh, I built lasers, for example. And I studied uh, some ideas that I had in optical computation. And that uh, encouraged me to reach out to some of the companies in the area where my high school was down in Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. And they were very supportive. You know, they would give me stuff to play with. What year was this? Was this? Oh, gosh. This was back in the late 60s. Late 60s. Oh, yeah. Okay. So things yeah. things were just kind of blown up back then. They were. Yeah. They were. And uh, such that later in my career, I actually got in on the ground floor of what is now called artificial intelligence. But even back then, I it didn't feel like they were on a course that I wanted to follow because most of AI early on was based on uh, formal logic. And I never have believed that human cognition is really based on logic. Logic is something that we learn how to do layered on top of much more primitive processes, I believe. And uh, I mean, there's a whole different talk that one can have about where is AI going today? Mm -hmm. And I don't personally believe they're on an especially auspicious course. In if what the aspiration is, is general intelligence. Today's AI is very good at specific types of tasks like pattern recognition, but you can't go from there to the bigger picture of what cognitive function is. But the... The main drawback at this point is that the assumption is AI can't reproduce human emotion, right? That's the only thing that it's incapable of. But no, no there also actually is some research where people are studying precisely how to emulate. And the importance is to emulate or imitate rather than really implement human emotion. Isn't, isn't that the argument, though, is that a robot can't have a soul? A robot can't have those well, emotions? Yeah, a soul is a squishy word, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, let's just speak about emotion. And emotion in, in critters like human beings is basically uh, a set of hard hardwired mechanisms that prepare us. They put us into a certain response mindset to deal with specific circumstances. And in some cases, they're, they're positive things. You know, when we're happy or we're satisfied, then we behave very differently than when we're threatened or when we're frightened. Sure. And so any sort of cognitive theory that aspires to try to emulate what humans are capable of does have to have a representation for emotion or, as it's called formally, affect. Uh, and the sort of emulation that I'm doing will take that into account as well. That's oh, a long way down the road. So, so where do you think it's going? What, what, what specifically? AI. AI? Uh, we're taking baby steps. 
We're finding out what it's capable of. We're finding out what its limitations are, where it's useful, where it's scary, like autonomous For weapons. Sure. Uh, basically kind of poking at it and seeing how far it'll stretch. Are you optimistic? I'm an optimist by inclination, but I also um, – I share some of – you know, there are people like Elon Musk – who have real reservations about the potential for harm there as well. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, if we ever become truly capable of autonomous vehicles, for example, uh, they have some potentially scary prospects uh, because they will follow whatever their goals are. And we can set those goals, but a system, an AI system, interprets those goals in light of current circumstances. And so we're asking a lot of ourselves to be able to put a, a robust bounding box around the behavior of an autonomous system. We're just not, as human beings, we're not that wise. What's your concern? That it would get hacked and manipulated? No. Or that it would, it would eventually take over and decide what it was going to do? It's basically it, its own decision-making capabilities. Mm -hmm. They might or might not align with what human beings would prefer that they do. So, but you know, I'm I'm also not big on boogeymen at this point. It's just it strikes me as being prudent mm -hmm. to um, put in safeguards and to proceed carefully. It's it's kind of like you know having containment in a level four biological environment. You don't want nasty viruses escaping. Sure, you want them where you can do something about them if something goes off track. So. Well, that's what the singularity is, right? When it crosses over from us in control to them ha having yeah. their own. Well, the singularity is basically the point at which uh, artificial intellect, as it were, exceeds human capabilities. Mm -hmm. And it's thought that that will be an exponentially growing process because if the system is capable of improving itself – there's a feedback loop in there, and it'll just keep getting smarter and smarter sure. and more capable. Whereas we humans are, you know, we're bounded by our biology. Well, what do you know about Neuralink? Uh, Neuralink, I have, I won't say a jaundiced view of, but it's it's pretty uh, narrow in what I think it can achieve. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of a neural lace, which is basically an interfacing to many many neurons at once. That's a pervasive problem in neuroscience research. Uh, where do you put your very finite set of electrodes? Nowadays, uh, neuroscientists have electrode arrays so that they can push them in contact, for example, with an area of cortex surface, and they can stimulate cells or monitor cells in that particular little region. Okay. But the numbers are so huge, and you don't know where the interesting stuff is happening in a neural net, typically. So you don't really know where to put your electrodes in the first place. Well, the brain is such a, such a large, uh, complex, complicated area that, that we don't even come close to understanding, right? Right. Yeah, the numbers themselves are absolutely daunting. Uh, when you consider there's something on the order of at least 10 to the 14th uh, synapses in a brain. And... A million is 10 to the sixth. So you're talking about 100 million million synapses. Yeah. It's just boggling. I don't even know how they could calculate that number. It's very difficult. Yeah. It's very, and, and it's been very contentious over time because, you know, we, we learn 
And sometimes the measurement methods evolve and you get a different result. Mm -hmm. But we are getting better at studying larger and larger chunks of brain. I don't know if you've heard of the uh, Connectome project. Mm -mm. It's, uh, it's a really cool project, that the objective of which is to identify the functional areas of a human brain and then look at the pathways of connectivity between them. Because the brain is not a ball of spaghetti. There are very specific pathways or neural tracts between specific pairs of functional elements. So the way I think about it is that uh, a human brain is basically a collection of specialist modules. Each one has a task, and it's by talking to each other in a specific pattern and by collaborating that you get what amounts to intelligent behavior. But you're saying 10 to the 14th synapses are constantly communicating amongst themselves. No. They have the potential to be communicating. Okay. They're not all active at the same time or we'd melt down. <laughs> it's just, you know, the, the energetics are interesting. Oh, they're so much more efficient energetically than, uh, than what silicon transistors are. Uh, there's a, still a gap energetically of at least 100 to 1 where we're, we're 100 times plus more efficient computationally than uh, computers are. And we've had some interesting talks in the Brain and Cognitive Sciences meetup about both energetics and uh, really kind of the, uh, the comparison, compare and contrast of biological versus uh, uh, artificial or in particular silicon mm -hmm. implementations of, of neural nets. So. And so is there a point where silicon microchips can reach that level to, to be on par with, with the human brain? If you look at the physics, I think the simple answer is, is no. Because right now, th there's this thing called Moore's Law that mm -hmm. you may be aware of. And we've actually it, – it's a, a log logarithmic scale of basically uh, computing power versus time. And ever since the old 8080 or before that uh, from Intel, we've stayed on a pretty straight, you know, on, on this logarithmic path of doubling the compute power based on doubling the transistor density roughly every year and a half to two years. But we're at the point now where companies like Intel, like where I worked, are really breaking their backs trying to figure out how to stuff even more of this very fine patterning onto uh, a given area of silicon surface. And we're running into physical effects like uh, diffraction that smears things out. So now, whereas photolithography that used to be used to make the, the layers, the masks that you use to build chips, that used to suffice with just visible light. And then they had to go to ultraviolet, which has shorter wavelengths because then you can make smaller features. Well, now we're at X-rays. And, you know, who knows? Maybe there'll be gamma rays at some yeah, point. Yeah, they, they need some sort of greater breakthrough, right? Like you said, yeah. they're going to reach the limit. Yeah. It's within 10 years, isn't it? Well, the, it's a receding horizon. Yeah. You, you know, we humans are pretty clever. We've managed to keep beating it back. Some people thought it would peter out about a decade ago, but mm -hmm. we're still going mm -hmm. and still more or less on that track. Uh, there may be other technologies 
uh, semiconductor technologies that are more energy efficient than silicon, uh, perhaps germanium. I don't really expect that though, that that's going to make a world of difference. So the ability to make three-dimensional structures, I mean, that's something that we're we're trying out these days, and we're getting better, especially in memory devices. You can stack things more densely than in the past. But then you run into the problem of how do you get the heat out of this volume of silicon? I see. Because if you can't pull that energy out, it's going to melt. Mm -hmm. And actually, one of the things that I used to do is design notebook computers, which was an interesting problem in that you're trying to balance stuffing a lot of things into a very small volume, pulling all the heat out of it, and uh, keeping the energy consumption down so that you'd have a decent battery life. Sure. And they're all pushing against each other. Sure. So, so going back a bit, you in the late 60s, as you're going through high school and everything, you're figuring out that you wanted to go down this path of kind of investigating engineering and, and developing uh, computer parts. Mm -hmm. And um, as you got into that, how old were you when you got in, uh, hired by IBM or Intel? Mm, I guess the usual, what, 21, 22? Just right out of college? Yeah. yeah. Yes. And so you continued to go to school and get degrees while you were working? Well, I did, although I had finished my two masters before joining IBM. And actually, the doctorate, which I, I can talk about later, uh, came much later. That actually wasn't done until 2005. Nice. Or, yeah, what am I saying? 15, after I retired. Um, so, uh, but I believe in continual education, so I stayed pretty current. But what were things like back then versus now if you spent 35 years doing that? Yeah. And you said that you're, you, you were on the forefront of AI? Uh, originally doing AI in areas like expert systems. And actually, uh, my favorite phase of my engineering career was when I was at my first job with IBM uh, at an IBM Scientific Center in the Bay Area, right next door to Stanford, okay. because that's where one of the hotbeds of AI was. And that also is a hotbed of the development of computing hardware. Mm -hmm. So I had the good fortune of, um, after spending a couple of my, my first couple of years doing some fairly vanilla systems design with IBM in Colorado, that I moved to the Bay Area and I worked with a very small uh, <clears throat> select group of people there whose job was to liaise with universities in the area. So, you know, Berkeley and Stanford primarily. And uh, I managed to convince management to let me start up what turned out to be IBM's one R&D group in neural nets. And in the course of about five years, I uh, was able to, with my little group of, uh, it was really three people, uh, develop not only ways of describing neural nets, but I developed uh, what you can think of as uh, a compiler for neural nets. A compiler is a software tool that takes a description of what you want to build and it spits out the actual computer executable data structures that you need in order to do that simulation. If you try to, to emulate a neural net by hand, a network of any size is just too damn complicated and too error-prone for a human to do it. So you need this uh, network compiler tool. And then we started to do simulations on a large IBM mainframe at the scientific center, and it pretty quickly pooped out mm -hmm. uh, 
with large nets. Mm -hmm. You just needed more horsepower. So <clears throat> I went back to the drawing board and designed uh, one of the very early, basically it's an array processor using an early TMS320 chip from Texas Instruments. Okay. It's a digital signal processor. So it's the sort of stuff that's used for running all of this uh, AV equipment these days. Mm -hmm. uh, so I strapped an array of those together and developed an interconnect hardware that let them talk to each other so that you could basically chop up the network you're trying to emulate and assign different pieces of it to these different little processing nodes in order to let each one of those maintain the state of just its piece of the network. But still, you glue the edges back together through this interconnect so that they can all talk together as if it were one big neural net. But what's that like? Does your boss come in and say, hey, we need to do this, and then you have to figure it out? Or do they give you the freedom to just magically yeah. create whatever you want? No, this was really uh, pretty carte blanche, trailblazing work. Uh, you know, you have to justify it to them. But it, it's like uh, applying for a grant to do research. Mm -hmm. You have to have a credible thing that you're going after that people can see the potential value of. <clears throat> but then, you know, short of uh, an inordinate budget, they, they stay out of your way. Mm -hmm. And especially at a scientific center, it was a little um, counterculture with respect to an engineering company like IBM. You know, kudos to them for investing in the basic research. That's what IBM research still does these days, although that's still pretty application-oriented these days. Yeah, there's there's a large <clears throat> benefit to allowing – I mean, that's the goal. You hire smart people and you let them hmm. discover things. Yeah. If, you, if you're micromanaging everybody, yeah. they're, they're not going to come up with the next best thing. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And it, it's always something of a crapshoot. You know, there's a leap of faith taken on the part of management, and they do assess periodically to see, you know, are we drilling a dry well or do we want to reinvest elsewhere or – Or are you drinking beers in the back? <laughs> <laughs> I think you got it. <laughs> but yeah, These guys was, do it over here. Yeah. Yeah. That was a very fun time. And in the course of that five or so years, we developed a, a suite of software tools that – Honestly, I have not seen anything rival uh, in you know the external world mm -hmm. uh, since then, and that also gave me the foundation that I needed for the suite of tools that I've developed for myself okay. to continue the march. I'm now on revision four of that toolkit because without the tools, you just can't do the experiments that that really are where my interest lies. So I don't view myself. As a coder per se, I don't delight in in writing code, but it's a means to an end. And what I really want to get to as soon as possible is again designing neural circuits and then simulating large arrays of these things. Okay, getting close. And so, what was the transition from IBM to Intel? Well, uh, there was a number of years actually between those. Uh, I left. Uh, IBM in 87 in order to do a little neural net startup company. And there were only a few places in the United States where that was uh, really a feasible thing because that's where the research centers are. And the one that I went to was in the Boston area. Uh, there's a guy named uh, Steve Grossberg who's, in my mind, one of the 
big pioneers in neural nets, although he doesn't get the recognition he deserves. Uh, he was at Boston University. And uh, I did a little startup company with a guy who came from the financial world. I was kind of the, the ideas and implementation guy and he was Mr. Moneybags. Well, sad to say that uh, that's where I learned the golden rule. You know, he who has the gold rules. <laughs> And we had a somewhat different vision of where to go with the company at some point in time, so we went our separate ways. But at that point, I was in the Northeast. And so then I did some consulting, applying neural nets for some big companies back then, doing things like credit scoring applications uh, and getting results that were better than the best non-parametric statistical techniques they'd applied. I, I guess I still don't understand neural net. What Can you explain that? In yeah. A neural net is, you think of it as a conceptual model for the processing that a neural net, that a real biological neural net does. So a neural net in biology consists of cell bodies or somas interconnected by lots and lots of fibers. The outgoing fibers are called axons, at the end of which are many uh, so-called synapses. Synapses are the points of contact between two separate neurons. And so you've got to be able to simulate both the connectivity and the processing that happens in the cell bodies. It turns out, as we're finding out today, much of the processing that's in, of interest actually happens in all of that interconnect stuff. You can think of them as cables okay. that in which signals hit and then they interact before they ever get to the cell body and the cell body makes a decision whether to start firing or not. A lot of stuff has already happened upstream in this interconnect. Okay. So the, a neural net models all of that, uh, both the cell bodies and the connectivity. So it's the potential pathways that this information can travel? You're kind of planning it out or, or hy hypothesizing what it could do? Well, not, not quite. The network, you think of it as a circuit design problem. Okay. You have a particular function you want to implement. You know what the functional capabilities are of the cell bodies and of the interconnect. For example, much of the learning or change in behavior of a neural net happens at the synapses. You can think of it as when an upstream node fires a signal down to another downstream node, it crosses a synapse, and then it hits the downstream node. If this is firing really strongly, and if there's a strong connection, then you might be able to kick the downstream node hard enough that it starts to fire, and so you get propagation. But if either you don't have enough firing upstream, or if the connection is too weak, you won't propagate enough signal downstream to really affect the downstream node, unless maybe you've got a whole bunch of different nodes that are converging on it, and mm -hmm. each one contributes their little pieces, and in aggregate, it's sufficient to kick the lower uh, node to fire. Uh, but when I say much of the learning is embodied in the synapses, think of it as the, the connection weight between those two nodes. If it's very low, the signal basically damps out when it's being propagated. If it's high, then the signal jumps that gap at the synapse and it hits the downstream node and you know the sparks can fly. Okay. So a learning model and there's, there's one in particular uh, called a Heb synapse, modifies the strength of the connection based on the firing patterns upstream and downstream. Uh, in Heb processing terms, nodes that fire together wire together. So if, 
think about it in, in the real world, what a nerve net wants to be able to do is detect when something is happening with high frequency and it happens in high correlation to something else that says there may well be a causal link there. Mm -hmm. Learn that. And so under those conditions, firing upstream, causing firing downstream, then you strengthen that connection. Uh, conversely, firing upstream, nothing happens downstream. You want to actually weaken that connection because there's not much likelihood that they're connected. Gotcha. So... That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. I apologize. I'm glad you, I'm glad you know about it because... Well, don't get me talking about this stuff. <laughs> uh, so I'm just thinking about the 70s and the 80s. Uh, I know that the early 80s were... Um, and I mean, right through like 74 to 84, you know, I, I think about Steve Jobs mm. and Apple yeah. and and the advancements that they were able to make and how that vision to put a computer in everybody's house mm. was totally unimaginable. Yeah. And they were able to make that happen. And you're kind of you're kind of in the background making a lot of these things happen, right? Well, it was a it was a heady time, honestly. Uh, we were the IBM Scientific Center was just down the road from uh, Xerox Park, where the mouse was invented, for example. Hmm. And I had the good fortune of having access to one of the first IBM PCs, uh, which was all very hush hush back then, to actually do some of the simulation work on. Uh, so yeah, it was you know. I was there in time for the crest of the wave to be sweeping through. Was it, was it exciting? Did you, could you tell yeah, things absolutely. were going to happen? I could see the potential. I certainly couldn't see how quickly the adoption would take place or uh, how things would evolve for operating systems, for example. Um, you know, IBM was just – or rather uh, Microsoft was just coming up with the notion of an operating system as this – kind of lingua franca that every personal computer would have to be running in order to run applications on top of it. That whole model was just coming to be. And think about Apple. The magic behind Apple is that they controlled the entire ecosystem from the operating system through the applications. And so they could get this very smooth collaboration between all their bits and pieces. The magic of the, uh, the PC model which remains to this day, is that by having this standardized lower layer that all of the apps developers could target, you could get just a boatload of different apps developed by a whole bunch of different people. Yeah. And so you get more functional versatility. You know, there's basically a tool there for anything that you might want to accomplish on your PC. Well, what do you prefer? Well, I'm uh, close to the metal kind of guy, so mostly... Uh, Mostly PC world, yeah. but honestly, when I was doing my consulting phase, I had one of each because you know you have to be able to talk in terms that your client wants, sure. right? Sure. Yeah, there's an argument for for the walled garden uh, that Apple promotes because yeah. that's the beauty of what they do is that you kind of just open the box and turn it on and yeah. it, it just works with everything. And it's slick and it's beautiful and it's yeah. been optimized. The, yeah. the problem – arises if you want to stray outside what they're what they have in the box then there may or may not be a solution well, then or, you go to linux right right yeah <laughs> linux is really for the uh, the people who want dirt under the fingernails yeah yeah but yeah where they want full control 
Yeah, when I first started programming, I remember it was an, an IBM 1620 computer. It's uh, probably, there may be a few museums with them still. <laughs> and then in 1130, but I remember the old 1620 even still had a patch panel with wires. Wow. Yeah. And uh, a step up from the abacus, but not by much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was fun stuff. And my, my initial programming was uh, machine language stuff. So you had to actually know the uh, the architecture of the machine and what the capabilities were of each register, and you would program in ones and zeros. And memory was at a premium back then. I'm really making myself into a dinosaur, <laughs> <laughs> but it's really true. It's like yeah. as a kid, I got myself uh, one of the old IMSI kits, one of the very first kits for a build-it-at-home computer, and it had this cool front panel and you could, with toggle switches, you can enter programs. But unbeknownst to me, it didn't come with any memory. Huh. You had to buy a separate board with 256 bytes of memory. And, you know, that's, I mean, you, you sneeze and 256 bytes are gone these yeah. days. People are talking in, in gigabytes now. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, it, it dramatically changed just in a matter of 30 or 40 years. Yeah. It's, it's insane that... Uh, Went from computers the size of this room to, I yeah. mean, now you've got a supercomputer right. and everybody's got one in their You're pocket. You're absolutely right. Yeah. The, you know, the oft-quoted uh, reality that a modern cell phone has more computing power than what the Saturn V had to get people to the moon and back. Yeah. And it's really true. Yeah. So why, why haven't we been to the moon in a while? I understand mm. that. <laughs> I, probably politics. <laughs> And differing objectives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We have the wherewithal. We proved it can be done. Now the frontier, of course, is Mars. Yeah. And we have to figure out, you know, Musk seems to think that Mars is a good place to seed with humanity because we could well off ourselves on Earth, which is true. So you place your bets by disseminating humanity across the solar system. But I just think he's bored. <laughs> what would you do if you had that much money? Yeah. Well, actually, think about the things he's involved in, things like Neuralink, as well as, yeah. uh, you know, all of his space exploration activities. Mm -hmm. No, he's got a lot going on. He does. He's a, he's a very talented individual. But yeah, yeah the, the Mars thing, I just don't see... I mean, we got to figure something out, because hmm. who, who knows how long this, this ride's going to last. But uh, it just seems so complicated to take the human race and put them... Yeah. On, on, on a ship. On an inhospitable planet. Yeah. yeah sh uh, send you out there into space uh, on a six-month journey just to get there, mm. to land in a place where you cannot breathe uh, without – I mean – And, it, how and did, it's a one-way journey for those early – Oh, voyages. for sure. Yeah. But that – I mean, it's kind of appealing in some ways mm. to be – I mean, for what it's worth, if you're interested in going down in the history books, to be the first person to to fly to Mars, mm. whether or not you make it, like that's that's pretty crazy. Well, we humans are pretty audacious, yeah. and I think that there is something hardwired into us to want to explore, to want to expand. That can have a dark side because the coda is at any cost. You know, we'll do what it takes to achieve our objectives. And we're seeing what that kind of a mindset can do to us here on Earth, where basically we're unbridled consumption of natural resources and 
we're not especially good at projecting consequences of our actions. You know, we tend to have a very short-term horizon that we plan to. And, of course, all the nasty stuff, such as potential climate change, happens longer term. Life is short. Yeah. We, we get 80 years, potentially. And uh, I think some people are concerned about what happens later, but really... Hmm. Most people are focused on now. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but... I, I think you're right. Uh, but there's always been a segment, albeit probably a small segment of the population, who, who do focus further out and who do planning rather than just knee-jerking their way through life. And uh, those give me hope because we are versatile and we're capable and we can be pretty cussed and determined when we want to achieve something. Mm -hmm. So let's just hope we set good goals. Yeah. Yeah, the thing that, um, that's gone through my mind a lot recently is the, is the, the thought that we think we're that special that mm. the universe cares. Mm. The universe is going to do what it wants to do. Yeah. And the universe will exist far longer than we will. Yeah. And so I'm not a proponent of burning it up and digging it out of the ground and burning it down, you know, <laughs> but we're going to disappear. Yeah. I think honestly that's that's an enlightened view. Some might find it too dark for their taste. Yeah. I think it's realistic. You know, in geological terms, humanity is a blip. And think of the impact we've had on an entire planet in the short term that we've been around, it's pretty scary stuff. Yeah. But you're right. There's also a lot of hubris in thinking. I mean, after all, we're glorified monkeys. Yeah. And, you know, this takes us in some contentious directions because then you have to think about uh, you know, things like religion, mm -hmm. uh, belief systems. And it's awfully easy to make stuff up and then conduct your entire life based on that. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think the conservative assumptions are we're here for a brief run. Let's make the best of it. Let's help each other make the best of it. And that would lead to uh, very different sorts of decisions than what I think a more consumer-oriented, uh, egocentric sort of perspective leads you to. Yeah. Well, there's just – there's not that much – to fear anymore. Life is really easy when you think about it. Like, mm. I think people have mm. more time to, people have more time to get upset about things they shouldn't be upset about because they're not running away from cheetahs. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, you're right. They're, in a way, they're almost false and superficial goals by comparison. Yeah. It's like an immune system. An immune system has to learn to respond to challenges, which means you have to challenge it. And I think we, in the first world anyway, have become so complacent and so falsely self-assured that we're very susceptible to things like what has just happened with this pandemic, mm -hmm. to where we're, we're ill-prepared to exercise the sort of uh, versatility that I think, you know, we, we have as a species. We've let our edge get dull. Uh, but again, there's a segment of the population who are more into the trailblazing and they challenge themselves. 
and hopefully that'll help save our bacon as a as a whole species. Yeah, it's interesting because throughout our history, we've constantly tried to battle things that were trying to kill us. And the only people that survived were the ones that were fastest or strongest or had the best hmm. systems to beat all of these diseases. And we've become so good at finding ways to subvert death that there's a lot of people now. Hmm. And there's a lot of people living that wouldn't have yeah. previously. I'm not saying that's bad, but it's it's so interesting that we've we've crossed a point like as far as I know, as far as science knows, there's there's never been anything before right. of this technological uh, level that mm. could figure out a way to not get killed. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, you're you're right. The thing that I tend to focus on is human collaborative capability. I mean, yes, when faced with challenge, human beings are capable of coming together and doing things, having a distributed plan with everybody having a role and responsibility toward each other and what have you that, that you just don't see that level of sophistication and behavior in the animal world. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are capable of that. But uh, one of the things that I'm a little bummed at right now is seeing the amount of division and to the extent that we focus on number one all the time, that weakens the fabric of community. Mm -hmm. And community is why we have survived and gotten strong. So we could well pay the piper for just not being able to collaborate. Yeah, it's almost, uh, it's almost a bad thing that we've become so smart and so brilliant and advanced in so many ways because we've created more problems for ourselves than if we were just running around throwing spears at buffalo you know what i mean mm -hmm. like uh the dinosaurs existed for hundreds of millions, millions of years, years. Yeah. and we've been around for hundred thousand years two well, three four five hundred thousand years cap it at two million years in some way shape or form okay. obviously but but yeah, that, that it's insignificant that's nothing compared to dinosaurs dinosaurs were around forever right. but they didn't develop they weren't making computers well their world was a lot simpler and the rule book of that world was a lot simpler. It's eat or be eaten, basically. It's, yeah. you know, maintain your energy balance. Whereas we have made a much more complex world in part because we're capable of it. Uh, one of the things that has happened with human beings, since at least since the advent of, of agriculture, is specialization. To where, you know, you rightly say, yes, we're intelligent, we're capable as a species now. But an individual within the species, you know, if one of us were taken out and dumped in the woods somewhere away <laughs> from humanity, would we survive? No. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's uh, the people who are most capable are the ones who have the most, uh, well, n native skills, but also versatility. They're able to figure things out on the fly because they don't presume that all the pat solutions are going to get them by. And there aren't many people with that level of uh, versatility, I don't think. Yeah. So I, I need to take a course on uh, surviving in the woods. That's what you're saying. <laughs> well, might be uh, might be good if social systems start to break down. Yeah. But yeah. So, what's your opinion on everything that's been going on recently? You you feel like uh, feel like we're getting to a better spot. It, 
Well, you need to bound the question a little bit in terms of the politics of our society, the world at large, uh, you know, national cooperation or lack thereof. Uh, it's a big question. Yeah. Um, well, I, this, this kind of goes into your – say you spend a lot of time working with um, computers and – uh, neural nets and, and creating things that were non-human. And then over time, you kind of transitioned into more of a human aspect, right? Well, that's a different – they're really different sides of my uh, interest and, and personality even. Uh, what I've done in the direction of community building is uh, really independent of my, my passion for the neurosciences and cognition and all that. It's just – because as far as personal creed, I believe that we are not, you know, as the, the John Wayne model would have us be uh, ruthlessly independent. And if you look at human history, what it shows is that we are interdependent, especially now that we all have specialized roles to play in society. We do depend on each other. And so to the extent that we uh, hang together and are willing to make some reasonable sacrifices for the greater good, we all benefit. The converse is also true that if we fail to be willing to collaborate with each other, uh, treat each other decently, we all suffer. And I think that the high levels of stress that prevail in our – certainly in our society are reflective of that um, kind of pathological independence that we're all programmed with. So – not, not a very glowing picture of our society, I know, but I think it's an honest one. It, what, what I was trying to get at, though, is that you were, you were more focused on objects that weren't mm. part of the human yeah. realm. The and natural you, world and computation. Yeah, and yeah. you kind of transitioned more into the human experience. Not really. No? I'm, I'm running the two forks in parallel. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But – okay. So what What inspired that? I mean hmm. – uh, Basically, I think who, who I am as a human being. Uh -huh. uh, I really have always valued uh, education. I always have revered – you know, the, um, the people who have been the trailblazers for humanity uh, – Often they've paid a high price for doing that. But they're, in a sense, the best and brightest among us. They're willing to take chances that most of us would not have the personal courage to. So that has served for a role model for me in terms of um, kind of my scientific and engineering enterprise. But on a different plane, I also um, – I'm kind of a, a bit of an atypical guy in that uh, I was raised primarily by strong women. Mm -hmm. And so I, I learned early on the value of empathy and caring and collaboration as opposed to the really often mindless competition that we guys are programmed for. And the only thing that's acceptable in a culture like ours is be strong, never be vulnerable. Uh, don't show your weak side because somebody will swoop in and take advantage of it. Um, and I've never been willing to lead my life with my back against a wall like that. So as a consequence, I've been something of an outsider. Uh, it's been sometimes a very lonely existence, but, you know, there's a price to be paid in kind of walking your own path. 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's a normal human constraint, right? That there are certain gender roles and people people get forced into those. Usually before they have the power to really elect one course over another. Mm -hmm. We get programmed with the stuff. We get that from our institutions, mm -hmm. uh, churches, government, in part because the emphasis at that level is on an orderly society, right? And so we all get fitted out to be widgets in a particular role in that society. Look at our educational system. It's also a means for producing widgets, you know, particular gears yeah. that fill needed roles. And I, I understand that. That's pragmatics. But it isn't necessarily what's in the best interest of the individuals involved. And uh, it, a little bit of – sounds like a diversion, but it's not. I was raised in a uh, an intense Catholic family. Okay. And I've always had a strong spiritual side. Spiritual, which I define as uh, a heartfelt belief that we are all connected in some mysterious way and that our fates are intertwined. And that drove me to uh, – I mean, I went to a, an excellent Jesuit high school uh, and I actually spent several months in a seminary considering becoming a priest mm. because I care about people. But I also know about human foibles. I know about the balance between uh, human freedom and human responsibility. There is a balance there. You can't have one without the other. And so what I want – with my life is to help uh, people realize that they have a choice to make, that all of the programming that we, as was the case for me, absorb as a kid doesn't need to determine the path that we choose for ourselves once we're adults. We have uh, – I actually coined a term for it. I call it rechoicing. Uh, you know, it's intended to rhyme with rejoicing because when you assume your personal power to try to figure out what is really right for you, that could take you in some pretty counterculture directions. You can make choices about your relationships, for example, that stray from the very narrow, well-worn path that we're all told we're supposed to stay within. And so that was a natural segue into uh, one very fraught area in our culture, which is human sexuality and the reason I got a doctorate in human sexuality. The the trauma, the hurt that I see in so many people, the confusion, the funky information. I mean, where do most kids get their information about sexuality, much less about intimacy, which is different? Uh, and it's, you know, word of mouth uh, from peers, right? You, you don't usually, you don't get much in the formal educational system other than, you know, how to avoid STIs, uh, what causes them. What but, did you get from the Catholic school? You know, this was Catholicism of a bygone era, so I don't yeah. think it's representative. The short answer is zip. Yeah, right? Zip. They would not even acknowledge the reality or the relevance of the subject. And honestly, just an iota more than that from my parents. Yeah. So uh, I did my own research. <laughs> And, uh, and subsequently my own choices. Yeah. But, you know, we all need help. And I personally, I know how much value, how much meaning I get out of my relationships. And to see so much isolation and alienation between people in our society, uh, there is a better way. And I just want to 
put it on the table for people to consider that, gee, if you're interested and if you can be open-minded enough to consider other possibilities, I'm here as a resource for you, which is all we can do. Each individual has to make decisions for themselves. But. So, so what, what what is the goal to have schools explain it better? Or you're saying just a broader knowledge of sexuality for everybody so people can understand. Yeah. It, it's, it's more than just knowledge. It's a different mindset. It's a different orientation toward that entire side of what it is to be human. Uh, relationship is a big deal for us. We're, we're social creatures. And sexuality, to me, is just one avenue for expressing how we feel toward another human being. Uh, so I, I think what needs to happen is really effectively a social movement. We need to, as a society, reevaluate. And yes, I'm tilting at windmills there uh, because it's so deep-seated and it's such inflammatory stuff for most or at least many people. You know, you can't even talk about sex without triggering a great many people. Mm -hmm. But how are you going to understand, much less make cogent choices, without being able to talk about something as convoluted as, as sexuality? Well, and it's also integral to the, uh, the extension of our species. It's so weird that people get so hung up on it and refuse to discuss it. Yeah. Think about why that might be. It's taboo for, for whatever reason. Right. And the for, for every re whatever reason, I think, uh, it stands to reason to me that human organizations, such as churches, realized early on that sex is a great lever for controlling people. Okay. You know, if people can control your sexuality, they've got you by the short ones. Well, yeah. I mean, the... the um the, the popes, the, the the leaders within the Catholic Church, they renounce their what is it? They, celibacy. Yeah, celibacy. Celibacy. Yeah. yeah. So so talk not about what you don't know. You know the complexities of living in a marital relationship is something that you can't just theorize about, and that's also why we need to be a little more gentle with ourselves. I think as we as individuals learn about our own relationships, and we screw up because we're human, mm -hmm. and. Sometimes that screwing up is so stigmatized uh, <clears throat> by organizations that it inflicts unnecessary pain on people. Uh, just to be personal, I've been through divorce. I know how traumatic it is. I also know that there was good stuff that brought me together with my ex-spouse and, and from her perspective as well. So why make it a traumatic situation? Realize that People change courses, people evolve, and, uh, and we need to give ourselves the latitude to do that. Not to not have commitment to each other because, you know, in a life partner, it is a commitment. But things change sometimes. I don't know that people know how to deal with pain, right? That's a good point. Nobody wants to, even biologically, we're averse to pain. We do what, it, what we can to avoid it, For right? Sure. And frankly, part of the getting of wisdom, I think, certainly that I've had to learn the hard way, is that sometimes there is no way to get to the other side except through an experience. You can't duck it because then it's like a boogeyman that chases you. Uh, you just got to learn to bite the bullet 
and take your licks, learn what you can, uh, and then focus on the good stuff. Don't don't keep staring into the rearview mirror. You know, uh, you make changes because you want to move your life in a more auspicious direction. You do, but the older I get and the more people I meet who've been through some things that are difficult, the more I wonder if you ever really get over it. I don't think people do. You don't forget. It becomes, it's always it's a there. Part, it's a part of who you are. Yeah. But that can also be a part of the richness that you bring into your next relationship. Mm -hmm. um, you know pain. You know the way the world actually works. You know what the risks are. And so in a way, that gives more meaning to when you make your next commitment, it's with your eyes open to what the possibilities are. And yes, with a little bit of fear perhaps, but you're still choosing to make a commitment at that point instead of just because somebody told you this is how you how you get married you just make this commitment you know for as long as you both shall live mm -hmm. uh, which is unrealistic well yeah why why is marriage a thing it used to be <laughs> reserved for uh commitments between families right it's yeah it has proven to be socially useful is is my conclusion uh you know, you want to have some stability in your base of production in society, which means you have to have a stable family structure in which people can grow up and survive long enough to become cogs in the machine and be productive, et cetera. I, I don't know. It's uh, it's a social construct that requires the purchase of a diamond. <laughs> and and uh, that was a great gambit by the diamond industry to somehow have diamond come to symbolize the value well, of a relationship. And to uh, insinuate that they are rare and not in abundance. There's well, a ton of diamonds. Yeah, but they are comparatively rare because the supply is carefully controlled. Well, exactly. That's why, yeah. Yeah. So not not to be too jaundiced, but... <laughs> no, it's, it's a crazy thing when you think about it that, uh, I mean... For everything that I've read or investigated, it it began as something where a family would approach another family and they would offer for this marriage to happen yeah, in most situations. Well, without, you're talking about the dowry idea. Yeah, where, yeah. where just two people yeah. were joined who had never met. Mm -hmm. There was no love. There was nothing yeah. that they, they could – reciprocate back. It, it uh, wasn't know. about that, yeah. right? It wasn't no. about uh, our modern idea of love. It was a, a financial arrangement. It was a way of consolidating power and resources. And again, that has survival value. Uh, it still does. But the, the whole notion of romantic love is fairly newfangled. Mm -hmm. And frankly, uh, in the past, marriage wasn't viewed from the perspective of the individuals entering into it. It was this greater intra-family system and what was best for for them. So, yeah, it's a convenient institution mm -hmm. if you want to achieve certain things. Well, <laughs> what, what do you think about um, monogamy? Is that a social construct I, as well? I think it is. There's, yeah? a, there's a very good book, uh, Sex at Dawn. Yeah, I've read it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That gives you an alternate perspective. Uh, I think, again, monogamy is socially convenient. I don't buy that it's natural to our species. 
and if you look at humanity, you look at the incidence of infidelity in our culture, you know, over half. Uh, that tells me that there's, there's a forced fit there. So I don't think that it's natural. Uh, I think that the notion of ethical and consensual non-monogamy has a lot of power to it. It, um, it requires kind of graduate level understanding of relationships because you have to know yourself well enough to know what you're capable of offering another person, what you need from another person, and then you have to be able to communicate that. Uh, I, that said, monogamy is not necessarily a bad thing if that's what's freely chosen by two people. And, well, and if they have what it takes to have that level of commitment. I mean, the, the, the basic argument for it is that you are allowed to procreate and then offer an environment for that child where there's two people around. But non-monogamous can do that as well. It's often done more like uh, raising a child in, in a village, yeah. which frankly, in many respects, may be healthier for the child. There's more variety. If something happens to a parent... The child loses that parent. Well, what are we going to do? Are we going to have a bunch of babies and put them in a warehouse? <laughs> no. Really, I think a village model is good. Yeah. Uh, to where people care enough about each other and each other's children that mm -hmm. they're responsible for each other. And then kids could maybe play outside without having to fear of getting ripped off by somebody mm -hmm. for, you know, sold into the slave trade or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's – I guess all I'm suggesting is – no, no intended condemnation of current structures, but we need to be broader-minded mm -hmm. rather than insist that that's the only way to live uh, is the way that we're, we're told uh, you know, in monogamous marital relationships. Well, real change takes time, right? It does. It does. All the things we do now are the things that people think we should be doing. And to, to be a proponent of any sort of change – especially in a radical change, like that's going to take decades. It does. And you have to go into it with both eyes open, realizing that's the case. Uh, the gay population has gone through that, right? There's much more acceptance now, mm -hmm. although I have to wonder how deep-seated it is. Yeah. But then what there has been in the past, in the past, you know, they had no option but to stay in the closet mm -hmm. because there was such stigma and, I mean, it was life-threatening stuff. Uh, the trans population is facing that these days. And, uh, you know, the bi population, just anybody who's not vanilla mainstream, mm -hmm. anybody who strays from this narrow path that you're programmed for runs risks. Mm -hmm. And it does take a long time to change. But there have to be people who are uh, audacious enough and enlightened enough to advocate for something different in order for there to be an alternative for people to even consider, you know, down the years. And then, you know, you may or may not be here when people enter the promised land, but at least you've done your bit to uh, give people choice. Mm -hmm. We all deserve choice. Well, yeah, what's the end game? Where does it go? T to me, it's to allow for the natural evolution of humanity in whatever directions uh, makes sense in, in that people are not being artificially constrained. They choose a path that brings them the most benefit with the least pain, not only at the individual level, but at the social level. That's how societies evolve. 
Um, but we're on the cusp of a monumental change with AI. Mm-hmm. And things will be different in a way that I don't think we can understand yet. No, we can't. You have people prognosticating. They, you know, they're seeing – they have their hands on particular parts of the elephant. But it may or may not be accurate. You're right. It's – we can't really understand the impact of a seminal technology like that until it's in place. And in a sense, then it's too late. Yeah. You know, it plays out. But, I mean, that's – that's kind of the nature of, of change overall. It's just that now it's happening at an exponentially faster rate to where there's a real question as to whether we human beings can respond quickly enough mm-hmm. to uh, prevent change that turns out to be you know, inauspicious. Yeah. So combining lack of omniscience, you know, we can't make all those projections soundly, and our slow response time and our desire to preserve What's happening today, we like inertia because then we can predict how tomorrow is going to treat us, right? But those trends all mean that we're not going to be in a very good position to respond to change that happens very quickly. There's a lot of people that don't want to change either. There's a lot of people that want to go back to the the 50s. Well, that – that, from my perspective, is the path of the dinosaur. Yeah. You know, sometimes change is not an optional exercise. Yeah. You adapt or you die. Yeah. You get left behind, basically. And it doesn't suffice to just be um, trying to tread water these days. You have to be willing to change, to actively play into the process. Otherwise, you're getting swept backwards by this torrent of change. Well, yeah, like you said, I don't think you have an option. It, it is doing what it's going to do. Right. And you either get on board or you try to fight it, but there's no fight. It's going where it's going. Yeah. It's the, the nail that sticks up that gets hammered down, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I try to tell my kids all the time. I'm like, at, at most points in human history, you could kind of anticipate mm. where your kids would be at and what they'd be doing mm-hmm. in 10 to 20 years. But I tell mine all the time, and not in a scary way, I'm just like, I don't know what to tell you to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know where we're going to be in 10 or 20 years. Right. Things are advancing so quickly. It, I'm not scared of it. Yeah. But you acknowledge its reality. I acknowledge its reality and that I can't do anything about it. Yeah. And I'm excited for it. But I'm also like, I'm glad there are smarter people than me that are in charge of it. But also, there, there, it reaches a point where it's out of your hands and it just. Yeah. There's so much inertia, and, and like a, you said. There's it's, it's a balance going. there, though. Don't don't sell yourself short in the sense that I, I believe we all have a responsibility to be part of the solution in whatever capacity we're able. And don't assume that the people with their hands on the controls are smarter than you. In some cases, of course, that's true, but not always. Uh, you need to make your desires and your needs known uh, I think that if more people participated in the political process in a constructive way, we would have different results than what we're seeing these days where the urge seems to be for politicians to preserve you know, their, their office and not so much you know, what's best for the people from the perspective of what the people are saying. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of truth to the old uh, bread and circuses 
from Roman times, right? Keep them fat, dumb, and happy, and and then you can do what you want. Mm -hmm. But that's not in our best interest. Yeah, well, I mean, also, you, you have a population who makes decisions based on headlines. Mm. The majority of people these days don't really read into things that are happening. They they feel like they don't have time or they're not interested yeah. or it's not entertaining yeah. enough. Yeah, and that's that plays into the personal responsibility that we all bear. We cannot let ourselves be that intellectually lazy because if you do, there are ample people around who will use that as leverage to manipulate you. Mm-hmm. And then, frankly, you have no one to blame but yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I think that you can't and you shouldn't just trust the information that comes across the internet from points unknown in many cases and make your decisions based on that. Because if you do, you could be like a lamb led to the slaughter and not even not even be aware of it. Yeah, that's happening for sure. The, we're, we're in a situation where I've had this discussion before here, I think. Um, we're in a situation where everyone that we know that lives in this country that's been an American has always believed or had the idea that we're the greatest and our money's worth the most and we're the best and everything's awesome and we're always taking care of it. There will come a point where that ride ends. <laughs> and I think no one wants to admit that or even forecast it, but it will happen. Yeah. I think it's worse than that. That has always been a, an illusion in my book. America has achieved some great things, but so have many, many other nations throughout the world. And we need to acknowledge that. And who's to say that our way of life is necessarily the most blessed or correct. Uh, there are things that, for example, a lot of the northern European countries do on a social footing that seems to lead to a lot more happiness in their societies as gauged by world happiness in indices mm-hmm. than yeah. what we have here. Uh, you don't see the gun craziness elsewhere that we do in the United States. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not saying don't be proud of America. We've done great things, and we will continue to do great things. And if we can preserve our our democratic form of government, we'll continue to be able to choose uh, what we go after, our social goals. But acknowledge that we're just we're one of many nations that are contributing to the evolution of humanity, and that means that calls for collaboration. That that means. We recognize that we can't walk alone. Our world is so interconnected these days that our fates truly are intertwined at the national level as well. Uh, I mean, none of this stuff is rocket science. And yet there is a tendency, I think, in us human beings to uh, to pat ourselves on the back uh, in cases where it's not warranted. And what that does, the, the dark side of that is that it can also blind you to weaknesses, and it can keep you from acknowledging and therefore addressing things that can really adversely affect you down the road. I'd rather not steer blind by uh, being too self-congratulatory. Well, yeah, and it makes people hate us too. <laughs> it does because it's inherently divisive. Yeah, and well, it's, everything is it's everything's, demeaning everybody else. Everything is winning and losing. Yeah, 
there's good yeah. and bad. It's yeah. a duality. Yeah. You know, I don't, I mean, I guess it comes from Christianity, you know, that you you need a side to root for and you need a side to hate. That's the easiest thing for the human psyche. Well, and and there is something that seems to be hardwired of uh, in-group versus out-group, right? We we exist best just uh, genetically in relatively small groups. Uh, you know, tribes like like tribes of monkeys, and when you try to scale that up past a certain size, we just don't seem to have the capacity. Yes. Uh, but what that means is that we then we have to benefit at somebody else's expense, and uh, and so life plays out as a zero sum game then. Yeah. And that's <laughs> that's, that, a, that's a buzzkill. That is because <laughs> that that's the thing that bums me out is like. There's so much competition between countries and GDP mm. and uh, shipping costs. Like everybody's competing on everything and making money off this person and this and that. Well, it's like we're all humans living on this rock. And if we don't figure something out, we're going to ruin it all. For everybody. Yeah. And you kid yourself if you think you can avoid that fate. Uh, just because you may be in the lead now – is no guarantee of where you're going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. That's what I think of as <clears throat> blind competition, almost competition for its own sta- sake to where that's the knee-jerk reaction. And that's a guarantee of continued conflict because there is no room for other people to also benefit. You can't go for a win-win when you approach life that way. And I think we all suffer as a consequence. Mm-hmm. And it's false pride to think that you're so strong and so invincible that you'll come out on top uh, by by repressing everybody else. Just Yeah, I mean, like, what's the goal? You just kill everyone except <laughs> the people in your country? Like, God. what? Yeah. I don't know. Make, makes no sense to me either. <laughs> but. but it's, like, deeply ingrained. I mean, I think of, like, the Vikings, you know? Yeah. It's true, but as human beings, we have powers of reason. And that's where we need to have a balance between our thinking and our emotional side to where if we just unthinkingly give way to our darker tendencies, then our fate is sealed because we don't have power of choice. And then it's just going to play out in the directions of what our evolutionary programming is, which conflict in this day and age is so potentially catastrophic that we have no basis for projecting it based on what was possible in the past. In the past, you know, you took out your bow and arrow and you maybe you kill your one enemy. Now you launch an ICBM, you kill 20 million people at once and you never even see them. It's a very different situation. And our only hope of overcoming that is to use our powers of reason to rein our, our darker side in. That's easier said than done. Yeah, exactly. You say that as a thoughtful, compassionate individual. How do you, how do you all, share that? How do you share all that with need, everybody? Job one is to make ourselves all educated, compassionate individuals, realizing our shared humanity. Yeah, but how do you do that? I think that that involves deep changes in our educational system, I think in our family system. Uh, in our economic way of life because uh, consumerism is based on ever-growing 
consumption uh, at at whatever cost. That's right. And nature does have horror exponentials. You cannot continue to strip mine and, you know, rape the environment indiscriminately forever. There just, there is an infinite resource to take advantage of there. And long before you exhaust the resources, you know, you'll have gotten gotten into such war with other people who are competing for those same resources that, you know, you'll off each other. Yeah. So I just, I guess I'm a big advocate for people assuming personal responsibility. And yes, we all have different talents and we have different capabilities, but each of us has a moral responsibility, I believe, to do our, our piece insofar as we're able. Not expecting equality, but expecting that everybody makes an earnest effort to contribute to the common good. Because without that, it's, it's the individual against the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, that just won't work. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's like everybody needs a role. Everybody, everybody needs something to do. I mean, you can't just eliminate all jobs. People would go crazy. People need a purpose. People need something to do day yeah. after day. That's why. That's my why my grandpa, who's been retired for thirty years, still tries to find jobs. Like he's still yeah. like constantly trying to yeah. do something. He doesn't want to just. He'll yeah. die. Yeah. You're right. People need constant activity and there's so many people around. We need tasks for everyone. Well, you you said a very powerful word, which is meaning. Uh We do all need meaning. We need to know that there's a reason for our existence. And it doesn't have to be, you know, the grandiose, I want to leave the world a better place. That would be a, a lovely outcome. But you need to know that uh, that there's more to it than just eating and drinking, et cetera, but maybe, from day to day. But maybe that's all there is. It's it's depressing to say it that way, but like... Well, uh, you know, I offer... There's love. The, the, all you need is one counterexample. And I think there are ample people who don't live in that day-to-day consumption way. I position myself as one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I was retired back in 2011 uh, from a very high-powered, high-demanding job, but I am busier today, or at least as busy as I was back then. Your life probably has more meaning because you're doing exactly what you want to do. And I do it because it brings me meaning. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to pursue the things that I believe in. And different people have different passions. They don't all have to be the same. It's better that they not be the same because how boring would that be, right? But you do have to make an effort. Uh, You know, when I first retired, I remember spending the first few months doing a lot of coasting and recovery and licking my wounds. I didn't know how deeply, even physically wounded I was from the sort of lifestyle that I was, you know, 90 plus hour work weeks, year after year, and I missed part of the growing of my kids and mm. there was a big price tag. Yeah. So after that fallow period though, when I had recovered enough, I had a drive to, okay, now what are you going to make of yourself? And a realization, retirement is a, a golden opportunity to now have control of your time to go after the things that really float your boat, that have meaning for you. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And hopefully 
most, if not all people, will have that sort of opportunity. They need to embrace it. Well, so do you think it would be better if you could instantly and automatically just do exactly what you wanted to with no financial compensation, everybody just did what they wanted to? That would ideally be a better place, right? Everybody would be more happy if they were always doing exactly what they wanted to. You didn't well, become a doctor yeah, because right. you could make $200,000 a year. Right. And and no nobody will ever get to do just what they want. Sometimes you, you do things that you don't want as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. But they should have choice to be doing things that bring them meaning in their life in a significant way. And I think that that is – you know, that's a choice that a society has to make that – if they think that's goodness, then they'll do – they'll put in place the policies that are necessary to make that feasible, be that uh, access to education, access to other resources that will let you uh, actually go after your dreams. But I think you're right. If, if you style one of the goals of a society is the happiness of its citizens, then that's part of the price. That's part of what you have to do to ensure that they have a shot at that happiness. I've thought about that recently. I wonder if previous civilizations were happier than we are. You, you'd think with, with all the technology and all the potential knowledge that we can gain yeah. and anything you could possibly want instantly, you know, you buy it from Amazon. It's here tomorrow. Yeah. Like, I wonder if we are less happy than anybody that lived before yeah. us. I think it's easy to, to posit that. But remember that life in the past has been very hard. Survival rates for people, individuals, the uh, average age of death, what have you, have, have been lower because the world was just a tougher place. We've managed to, as you pointed out earlier, we've managed to insulate ourselves from that to a large degree. So I'm not sure that it's, you know, that that what we're living through now is any easier other than some of our physical needs are more easily fulfilled. But I think it's been something of a siren song. Maybe that has made us soft. Maybe that has helped us to lose, lose focus on the importance of uh, doing significant things. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, you know, when I, when I reinitiate the meetup, that I intended to do for community building, it's going to be to help give people um, a place to come together and help put meaning in each other's lives um, because we don't have many opportunities like that in our society. And I think there's a crying need for it. Yeah, definitely now. there, There's a lot of loneliness after the previous year. Yeah, people, absolutely. The... Uh, the psychological effect of not being disconnected of not seeing mm -hmm. the entirety of someone's face mm -hmm. of not shaking hands yeah. of hugging um yeah it's taken a toll that we haven't fully realized no. we're just we're still numb from the experience i think yeah but um and i'm not sure that that our society will go back to being the way it was before. I think that we've gone through some adaptations. We've we've learned some things about our vulnerability in some cases that yeah. we didn't know before. Um, but I think there are also new opportunities that are coming from that. I was rather surprised that in the course of the pandemic, you know, I had started this uh, Meetup website specifically 
to give people a place to start to try to come together. What I found out, or what I've concluded anyway, is that virtual connection is just not a substitute for being in, in the flesh with not each at other. All. Yeah. And people were just, they were not responding. So I recognized reality there and I turned the thing off for now. But now that we can start to get together physically again, that doesn't undermine the realization of how important that human connection is to all of us. So my optimistic side comes to the fore again. And I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, I can help people uh, bring themselves together in whatever way is comfortable for them. I have, by the way, a, a, a website that I need to maintain better, but it's for the same purpose. It's called lovingtolove.com. It was uh, basically meant to support the meetup that is not currently active, mm -hmm. but to give people, a, you know, my intention is to start to uh, to have events where people can come together to get to know each other and in some cases to establish more than superficial connections with each other because most of our transactions in our society are so transactional, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it, it's a lot to expect that people are going to embrace uh, the vulnerability that's necessary if you want to really establish a connection with another human being. But without having a place to at least try that where it feels right, you know, we're left disconnected. Mm -hmm. So we need, we need to have a, a venue people can use for that. Anyway, a lot of work to do. Well, I think that's a good spot to uh, wrap it up. We, uh, w when I put it out, I can put whatever links you want in the bio, so people yeah. will be able to see yeah. that. And yeah, that one will be good uh, since I don't have a meetup to to share at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I don't know. I guess I can I can give you my uh, private email for people who want to share. Uh, I'm I'm certainly game for that. And, you know, we've covered a lot of ground other than neural nets, but it's all interconnected. It's all good. I've thoroughly... It was all good. I, I've got so many other things I want to ask you, so we'll have to get together again. But I'd I appreciate you sure. uh, coming down. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And I appreciate, you know, what a thoughtful person you are. Thank you. Yeah. You, I mean, you're clearly you're, – you're grappling with some of this tough stuff. Trying to find the answers. There's a lot of things you can't answer. There are. There are, but don't lose faith. And, <laughs> and you know, just the fact that you're uh, you're making the attempt says a lot about you as a person, I think. Cool. That's all that any of us can do ultimately. Mm. And, you know, my path is different from yours. My conclusions are going to be different from yours. Uh -huh. But the more we can at least share our perspectives, it, it helps all of us. Mm -hmm. So thank you for the service of, uh, of your podcast. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you.